You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have uh, Preston J. McDougall, PhD. He's a professor and an author. We're going to be talking about atoms and molecules of quantum theory. So, Preston, thank you for coming. Thank you for hosting me. Yeah. Um, would you mind giving me just a little bit of uh, a little bit of your background, your recent background, and uh, how you chose to focus in on uh, you know studying the um, atoms in molecules and the quantum theory about them? All right. Well. Currently, I'm a professor of chemistry at Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro. I've been here 25 years now, uh, mostly teaching chemistry, general chemistry, uh, as well as doing research on theoretical and computational chemistry. And before I came here, I was a postdoctoral researcher at Los Alamos National Laboratory doing computational modeling of materials. And before that, I was at Texas A&M. And then before that, I was a a student and undergraduate and graduate at McMaster University of Canada, where I met the late great Richard Bader, who is the founder of the quantum theory of atoms and molecules. And my oh, wow. research huh. in this area started as a student under his direction. Yeah, this, I, well, maybe I'm starting off with a zinger, but um, where is the interface between, you know, quantum effects dominating and uh, Newtonian effects dominating? Is it at the Atomic level, the molecular level, certain size molecules, certain conditions. All right. Um, well, quantum effects, there's a Nobel Prize given out for this um, just a few years ago to a trio of computational chemists who um, developed new quantum mechanical methods to model uh, behavior of macroscopic systems like plastics or enzymes, um, well, macroscopic compared to a single atom. Um, but they're systems that are too large to be treated by quantum mechanical theory that were developed for individual atoms. So these these scientists work, and and many more besides them, but they're the ones that recognize, for basically embedding tools that describe the properties of bonds, um, which measure in tenths of nanometers, uh, to the mechanical properties of something that is measured in, in thousands of nanometers or maybe millimeters or meters. So um, quantum mechanical effects rise at the, the level of atoms and bonds, but they can be embedded in, in very large systems. And those systems will not work as we know them without quantum effects. So it's, it's sort, of, um, a, a, sort of an embedded problem. You don't treat the whole thing quantum mechanically, but you need to treat parts of it quantum mechanically and use classical mechanics for the rest of it, where you treat the bonds like springs. Some bonds, you can model them just their mechanical properties with Newtonian mechanics, like you would a shock absorber. But model what happens when that bond breaks or when that bond 
is exposed to light, then Newtonian mechanics do not work and you have to use quantum mechanical <clears throat> methods to describe that small piece of a large system. What's an example of a macroscopic quantum effect, either in a biological system or in an inorganic system? Okay, um, well, for, for instance, uh, if you have a, uh, an enzyme that are in our bodies all the time, that are carrying oxygen from our lungs to our cells, um, there's individual atoms, iron atoms, at, at the, the active site of these enzymes that only bind oxygen when they're in a certain electronic state. And that state can be manipulated by, um, by light or by magnetic effects or um, other poisons, for instance, um, so that, that, that's, that's one example. Um, again, these are um, very broad problems in computational chemistry. Uh, what I'm trying to do is develop tools that will help computational and experimental chemists understand uh, what's going on at the individual atom level, what's going on at the subatomic level. Because uh, when, when most of these chemists treat these systems with computers or do experiments on them, what they what they the computer is modeling is the atom. A, a computational chemist will tell a computer, "I have an iron atom in this hemoglobin molecule," and to the, the chemist will just think of it as a as a ball, like you see in a textbook. But an atom is not a ball. An atom is has got lots of subatomic features. It's got quantum shells. Well, that, that's what uh, my research is, is devoted to, is trying to understand this, this really subatomic structure that will help us understand why certain, mo certain molecules are bound to hemoglobin and other molecules are not, and what, what controls the release and so on, and, and any, any other chemical process you can imagine. Well, what's, what's the fine structure of an atom then? I mean, traditionally, you know, it's, uh, what I've learned is the nucleus with that's right. the protons and or neutrons, and then... Very, very far yeah. outside of that, you have uh, electron clouds zooming about. That's right. Know, or electrons zooming about in a probability distribution. But what, what yeah, are their structures exactly there right. that you've found? Okay. Uh, well, you mentioned the nucleus. The nucleus is measured in uh, femtometers, named after the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi. And a femtometer, huh. which is what they measure the cross-sectional size of nuclei, it's, that's a millionth of a nanometer. So it's, a, so it's very small. As you, as you said, the nucleus is extremely small, a 10,000th of the size of an, an average atom. Then, as you mentioned, there are the shells, the electron clouds, you call us, orbiting around um, the probability distribution of electrons around the atom. And atoms, depending which atom you're talking about, they measure uh, diameters of about one to two angstroms, so a tenth to two-tenths of a nanometer. And uh, this cloud you referred to, just, well, if you look at the clouds outside today, you see different shapes of clouds. There are other clouds, there are cirrus clouds, there's beautiful puppy dog clouds. So the clouds that you mentioned in atoms, they, it, has, it has shell structure. Chemists know about the quantum, chemists emphasis know about the quantum uh, levels in atoms. When you look at the cloud, it looks just like a cloud outside. It looks like it's a lot, very dark near the nucleus, and it just sort of gets more diffuse as you get further away until you get to another atom. But it's not just simply uh, changing. If you look at the second derivative of the Laplacian function, it's just the second derivative. You can, then you can see that this, 
cloud has got structure to it. It has shells. If you look at an oxygen atom, there will be a, uh, a region of concentration near the nucleus. Then there'll be kind of a, a depletion. Then there'll be another concentration at where chemists say the valence electrons are. And then it just falls off to, to nothing. But if you go to sulfur, which is one row below oxygen, you see three shells of where the electrons are concentrated in this cloud. And that's all revealed by taking the curvature of this fairly uh, simple looking peak. It's very analogous to uh, Braille. I like to use the Braille example. Okay. If you take a piece of paper and you run your finger across it, it's smooth. That means that the curvature the, is zero everywhere. The, there's no lumps or holes. But when you, when you put coat it with Braille, you put a uh, little dents on it. And when you have a dent, at the, at the middle of the dent, you have a lump like a peak. That's a negative curvature. That's a, that, if you were to calculate the der, second derivative of the elevation of the paper, it would be negative mm. where, you have, where you have a dent. And it would be positive at the edge, or the, at the end of the, end of the dent between the dots. So when a, when a blind person reads Braille, they're actually taking the regions of negative curvature and translating that into information. In three dimensions, oh. at the oh. at the nanoscale, if you were if you had small enough hands, you would and you moved your hand around the atom, looking for lumps and holes. One atom, you would find you would find shelves where there were electrons are concentrated, where chemists and physicists think of the quantum shells being there. But when an atom is in a molecule, it's no longer spherical, and that sphere gets distorted into lumpy regions on a shell. So if you imagine I have a basketball, a basketball has a, we've got, you know, it's fairly smooth. We've got some dimples, but it's, it's fairly smooth. Imagine on that basketball, you have lumpy regions like, uh, um, uh, and, and, and dense, a distorted basketball. That's what happens to a valence shell when it goes into chemical, when an atom goes into chemical combination. So it sounds to me like about a little bit of chemistry. So you've probably heard about Lewis dot structures. So for instance, with oxygen, right. Lewis dot structures, yeah, yeah, right, pair yeah. bonds. Yes. Yep. Okay. So yeah, when a, when a chemistry student learns or an organic chemistry student learns to draw pairs of dots or represent pairs of electrons, between carbon atoms or between carbon and hydrogen atoms or single bonds or double bonds. Sometimes you have electrons left over and you, you call those non-bonding electron pairs. After you've, after you've used up all your electrons and you see where all your pairs of dots are, when you compare that picture to where quantum mechanics finds the lumps in the valence shells of the atoms, in the, 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 the lumps in the cloud distribution for those atoms, you find there are lumps where the students drew, if they did it correctly, where they drew the pairs of electrons used in bonds or non-bonding. And so it's pretty, um, it's pretty satisfying for simple organic molecules. But when you go to the middle periodic table or transition metals and you have magnetic states and you have, for instance, iron is, has electrons that are chemically active in both the third and the fourth shell, elemental iron. So now you have two shells when, that, are, that have possible structure involved. And when you go to actinides and lanthanides, then you can have three shells where there's, where there's subatomic features, these, these, these concentrations and depletions that are within the shells, within the atom. And these measure in, 
yeah, and these, these features that I was talking about, these lumps and these holes in the shells that are subatomic, you know, like in, in oxygen in water, there are four concentrations in the oxygen uh, shell of concentration, it's valence shell. And these measure, if you, if you were to measure their distance, their sizes, their thickness and their width and so on, that's measured in about in tens of picometers. So a picometer is between a femtometer, which measures the size of nuclei, and a nanometer, which measures the size of molecules. So the picometer is 10 to the minus 12 meters. Um, so remember, an well, atom me, is about a 10. Go ahead. So let me ask you some more basic questions. Um, if we were able to, what does an atom look like? Does it look like a, uh, a lumpy surface? Does it look like a sphere? If we were able to see one somehow, what would it look like to us? What do you imagine it would look like? It would look like a cloud. It, if you, uh, yes, when you, and it would look like a pretty simple cloud, like you see in the sky. It would, there'd be, like I said, it'd be very dark near the nucleus, and it would slowly and fairly evenly get lighter as it got further away. Like I said, when you, Why would when it, you uh, take... Is it the electrons moving around, you know, the nucleus so fast in such a small space is that why it would appear to be a cloud? Because it appears to be everywhere at a given moment yes. in time. Yes. Therefore, that's electrons why we're saying a cloud. Move, yes, electrons move much faster than virtually any experiment we can do. Now, physicists are are developing these really fast lasers called atopulse lasers, and these are pushing mm. the boundaries of technology. But if you do that, then it's possible to see the electrons sort of in their motion. But that is very few labs are set to do that. Most labs and universities and industry use X-rays to look at atoms. That's that's how um, Watson and Crick looked at the, the experiments that Rosalind Franklin measured of DNA crystals, and that's how they determined ultimately that it's a double helix structure. But Rosalind Rosalind Franklin used X-rays, steady stream of X-rays from like at your dentist's office. Um, very narrow uh, beam shining at DNA crystals, and those X-rays diffract off the electrons that are in the atoms. And that diffraction pattern tells the chemists where the electrons are in the crystal, and that's then they get the cloud. So when Rosalind Franklin did that experiment, she got a little uh, what's called a diffraction pattern, <clears throat> a bunch of spots where the electron be uh, X-ray beam that went in came out and formed many, many spots. So it's called the diffraction pattern. And when you turn the crystal, the diffraction pattern changes. And what crystal, crystallographers do is they collect all those spots, those reflections, and they feed into a computer and they create the cloud density. The cloud density, where, where it's really dark, it says, ah, there must be a nucleus there. And if it's got a lot of electrons, then it's a heavy nucleus, like chlorine or, or, or iron. If it's a very, very wispy cloud, not very dark, then it might be carbon or oxygen. So that's how crystallographers determine the structure of matter, the atomic structure of matter with X-ray diffraction. This has been going on for 100 years now, um, and they're getting better and better at it. And now they're able to use very, very um, finely collimated beams of X-rays, even gamma rays, which are much, much smaller wavelengths, so they can start to see this subatomic structure that I was talking about, get the cloud so accurately measured that when you when you calculate where its concentrations are by measuring the derivatives, 
okay, you have to you have to measure the cloud density, which is your function, and then if you measure it accurately, you can take the first and second derivatives of that, which is just what any calculus student learns to do. Uh, but once you take the second derivative of a very accurate cloud, then you see the shells and you see the pairs. You see you see the lumps where chemists learn to draw the pairs. Okay. Okay. Are there concentric clouds? Let's say an iron atom, or you know. Um... Would you see concentric clouds if you were able to probe deeper than the first cloud? Do they lay like that, or do they, uh, you know, are there areas where you if can you, see through to a lower at, level of cloud? If you looked at iron atoms in the gas phase, individual iron atoms in the gas phase, uh, which can be done, has been done, uh, and you would see concentric spherical shells. And in iron, you would see three definitely and maybe you'd see the fourth one it's very very hard to see that one because it's the electron the uh, two electrons in the fourth shell of iron are very spread out they're, they're not very concentrated so it's hard to see them but you would definitely see three um and maybe the fourth uh -huh. now when that iron atom goes into a molecule what might happen is those outermost electrons will be ionized they'll be oxidized most iron atoms in your body or in minerals are at least in the plus two or plus three oxidation state. That means that the two electrons that are in that outermost shell, I said you could maybe, maybe not see, they'd be gone. So now you're down to just three shells in an iron ion. Mm. And in a molecule, those would not be spherical. You have lumps and holes. And um, they're really very stark. Um, some of the pictures that I've, uh, I've, worked, I've developed working with uh, scientific uh, graphical scientists at NASA Ames in, in Mountain View, California. We've developed some interesting tools for visualizing these um, topological features yeah. that have been written about in, in Nature Magazine by a professor of art history uh, at Oxford University. They're really, really very beautiful pictures. And that's what I, now that's how I imagine an atom. I imagine an atom as having still clouds, but now I imagine clouds of depletion and concentration where I'm, where I'm exploring the second derivative of what can be measured. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, there are lumps and holes. And uh, okay. if, iron is going, if iron is going to react with something that has extra electrons, let's say carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide has got lots of electrons, some that are non-bonding. In other words, carbon in carbon monoxide is very basic. It wants to donate those extra electrons somewhere to make a bond. Hmm. And it's very toxic. So that there's a lump on the carbon atom in carbon monoxide. And that lump will try and fit, fill the hole in the iron ion that is in hemoglobin. Because the iron has a hole and carbon's got a lump. And they, it's like, a, it's like a, a lock and a key. Uh, but biochemists, I don't know if, you, if you've encountered the lock and key model of uh, Fisher in biochemistry, but a lot of biochemists imagine an enzyme as being a lock, and only certain molecules will react because they're like keys. Only certain keys will fit in the lock. So that's right. lock and key model is very popular amongst biochemists. But you're talking about locks and keys that measure in nanometers. Same kind of thing now, but I'm talking about much, much smaller holes and lumps. They're measured in picometers. So I call it picotechnology. Um, right. Between nanotechnology, which looks at the structure of molecules and relates it to their function, and uh, femto technology, which is what if you were being uh, a little bit silly, you could call nuclear engineering. 
because remember, nuclei are measured in femtometers and nuclear energy, nuclear engineering kind of technology, it would be called femtotechnology if you wanted to have the same kind of number. What about, um, what about, have uh, scientists been able to look at like a completely denuded iron atom? You know, you took off all the electrons, ionized it to the fullest, and then looked at the structure of the nucleus. Have we been able to do that? Um, we've come pretty well. We can certainly, we can certainly blast almost all the electrons off of iron. Uh, but then we're or another we, atom. Then it'd be okay. Um, well, yes, you can take the electrons off, but then it's hard to study them because as soon as you try and isolate them, they'll take the electrons back. So. Uh, mm. Your question, but you could you could do some of these experiments in the gas phase, and um, I'm not sure anybody's tried to do the experiment. But again, chemists are interested in atoms and ions as they as they uh, exist in actual compounds. You know, a chemist is not too interested in an iron plus ten ion because they're not found in in any uh, natural environment. But in principle, you could do that experiment. Um, yeah, just was, to see the structure said, of the nucleus. Was, I just wonder what the nucleus was, looks like if it's just like you know little balls stuck uh, together, or who knows what it looks That's like. a great question. That's a great question. That's that is what um, what, what colliders do, uh, particle accelerators. Um, if you've ever been to Stanford uh, University, or Highway uh, 280, it's an interstate. Um, it goes from Palo Alto up to uh, San Francisco, San Francisco. It goes right over, and you can see it as you drive. Dorothon 280 from Stanford, um, it goes over the SLAC, Stanford Linear Accelerator. And that's where they fire electrons at targets at almost the speed of light. And that, that, that's what happens. The electrons blast into the target, which could be made of iron or uranium or something like that. And the electrons actually penetrate the nucleus and they scatter, they go through the nucleus and scatter off. And again, by studying how the electrons scatter off, they get an idea of what the what the nuclear structure is like, which is, I think, is what you're asking me. Mm. And it's yeah, sometimes yeah. It, you know it's basically like a ball, uh, but it's, again, it's not spherical. It has lumps and holes too. Uh, there's even shells, quantum shells in a the nucleus. There have been a couple of Nobel prizes awarded for that. Uh, but that yeah. is that is femtotechnology. That is yeah. looking at the structure of matter at the femto meter scale. And that, that can be done, but <clears throat> chemists aren't too interested in that because, um, like you said, the nucleus is kind of, it's important that it's there, its charge is important, its mass is important, but that's all that's important. The chemists really only care about the electrons and molecules. Well, I, I just wonder, like, um, you know, electrons are the currency of all chemistry, Yep. it seems like to me. Um, it's just weird. You know, I've, I've asked this question a couple times, no one seems to know, but I don't know how you could know, but you know, if you look at two atoms, they'll they'll differ only in you know the number of electrons, protons, and neutrons, but yet they have different properties. And you know, same thing with molecules. I guess fundamentally, there's not a lot of difference between them, but yet they have all these emergent properties that are incredibly diverse. I mean, how does that happen? Where does that come from? Okay, well, it's exactly if you, if you take a piece of piece of braille and I put I put a bunch of spots on it. To you, it looks like a piece of paper with a bunch of spots on it. But when a blind person scans, feels that, where, where the, what's the pattern of the lumps on that piece of paper? That blind person who's been taught to read Braille can, can translate that into information. The same thing is true with this cloud. In different molecules, the cloud 
when you look at the second derivative of it, the cloud has different lumps in different places, different numbers of lumps in different places. It's, it's a pattern that it contains information that can be read by other th things that can, that can feel through forces where the lumps and the holes are in these clouds. So that's, that's exactly what Pico technology is. Pico technology is looking at the patterns of these subatomic features of the electron density. This cloud you're talking about, it looks the same if you just look at the cloud, but when you look at the second derivative, you see the fine structure that differs from, mo from molecule to molecule. Sometimes it's very similar. Like one of my graduate students is looking at the ketone chemistry. So the, the keto group or the carbonyl group is present in millions of types of organic compounds. And it's very transferable. In other words, the carbonyl group in hexone is almost the same as the carbonyl group in heptone. And in that case, chemists have known this for a long time intuitively, but we're finding that the, all, the, all the PICO, the PICO technology, the, the features measured in picometers are almost the same in the carbonyl group from heptone to heptone, from hexone to heptone. Um, so when the, when, the, when the parts of a molecule are not very different, the features are almost identical. When one part of a molecule reacts quite differently than another part of a molecule, it's probably because one of the holes is much bigger. And that shows up in these PICO, uh, the subatomic features that are measured in picometers. So mm. I could answer your question. If you, you could finally have an answer to your question, uh, but I'd have to show you with, with pictures. Um, but the pictures are of real features that can be measured with experiments. When most yeah. chemists talk about how one molecule differs from another molecule, they talk about the, the orbitals. Molecular yeah, orbitals. Right, it's more than that. They, yeah, that's what you learn about organic chemistry and so on. Those cannot be measured. They're, they're really mathematical, abstract, purely artifactual things. They're, they don't actually exist. They certainly cannot be measured. Um, so a lot of chemistry so really, may be uh, a high-speed a high braille reading of uh, lumps and bumps of uh, interacting electron clouds. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Yep. Molecules do it. The speed of chemistry. They're able to sense um, where the lumps and holes are in, in nearby molecules. And uh, the forces hmm. take over, and the lumps very often fit right into the holes. And um, I've oh, seen some interesting examples of frustrated molecules where a molecule is approaching another molecule, and there's a hole. It can, the hole is there, but the hole is obstructed by another ligand in the, in the way. And so I've seen some molecules where the molecules will kind of twist to get around up, um, obstacles. So you see some interesting you see some interesting structures where a when, mo when when most bonds form, it's face on, like two two molecules connecting straight on, like two Lego pieces. Two yeah. Lego pieces will clip on exactly on top of another. That's a typical unobstructed bond. But imagine imagine a a Lego piece where there's an obstruction, and one piece was at an ang had, to, had to be at an angle to the other piece in order to stick. Uh, this kind of I call it misdirected misdirected valency, and we've it's been seen in some interesting molecules, and they have special chemistry precisely because the bond is bent. Some of these bonds are forced to bend because of where the lumps and the holes are, and it's fascinating. But um, it's all yeah, it's crazy. all the result of these subatomic features. And again, you can you can measure them, 
They're real. At what They're distance, not imaginary at, things. Yeah. At what distance um, have you observed that molecules can sense a bonding opportunity like this? Well, that's, that's, that's something that that's right. that's something that that all quantum chemists and and uh, gas phase molecular beam experimentalists can do, and they start to they start to experience effects around maybe five or six angstroms, four to six angstroms. So that's um, about half of the, half of the nanometer. They start to in, in, uh, in terms of uh, the size of atoms, though. What that's about that? that's that's about four or five atoms. That, yeah. That's assuming that these are these are these are neutral molecules. If you have two ions, like a a sodium plus one ion and a chloride minus one ion, then they experience electrostatic attraction at a much further distance. Uh, but if you're talking about you two neutral could, uh, molecules. Do you think this could be, um, I don't know, have to do with uh, tunneling, electron tunneling, this sensing of an opportunity to uh, change its energetic state? Well, um, when, when people talk about tunneling, they're usually talking about proton tunneling, so quantum oh. mechanical behavior of a nucleus, a light nucleus. Like no, I was talking about electron, electron tunneling. Well, electrons, all electrons are quantum mechanical, so um, um, that's sort of the weird property of electrons is they're all placed at the same time. So all electrons right. really tunnel all the time. Um, when, when people talk about tunneling, they're usually talking about nu- proton nucleus nuclear tunneling, proton tunneling. Okay. Uh, but yeah, but uh, electrons, yeah, they 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 change their state all the time. And let's say well, we started talking about an iron ion in hemoglobin. There's what's called the high spin and the low spin state, and this is a result of what you said, a transition between one quantum mechanical state of the iron and another quantum mechanical state. So in other words, one is a high, highly magnetic, the high spin, and the other one is weakly magnetic, a low spin. And those two states will have very different patterns of their lumps and their holes. It'd be a different Braille signature. Um, so yes, technology in principle, it would, you would see a change in the, in the subatomic structure when the electrons have undergone a transition from one state to another. Yes. That's, you know, what's interesting all... is just, just with this, um, if you're able to understand how the the pits and bumps and all that look, then theoretically you can create a molecule in, a, in whatever state it needs to be in so that it creates pits and bumps as you like them. And then maybe you can exactly. orchestrate uh, an attraction that of is, that two is... molecules that can't consummate, can't bond, but it's still, exactly... they attract each other. That's, exa- that's the dream. You just, you just fast-forwarded... 20 years in my long-term plan. That is the long-term goal, exactly what you just said. And we're, we're actually using a machine learning to try and speed up that. So we can take what we've learned about lumps and holes and how it relates to chemistry to engineer um, molecules to do what we want. Yeah, that's, that's the long-term plan. Uh, it takes, could it take what, time and money. And you could do such so a thing right. today. What would you What would you want to do? What What kinds of things do you imagine you could do if you knew what uh, if you could engineer these structures and modify them all that? Oh, that's a That's a great question. That's a great question. I think um, one of the things I, I'd like to do, and I've done some preliminary studies, is I'd like to figure. I'm interested in catalysis is such an amazing field where you can um, you can find a, a compound that will speed up a reaction that is desirable, but too slow. For instance, uh, fixation of nitrogen or carbon dioxide. So when, when chemists talk about fixation, what that means is take something that's in the gas phase and a, just a gas 
and turn it into uh, a liquid or a solid or something that is not a gas. So plants do that. Plants take nitrogen from the air and they make uh, um, nitrogen compounds, like nitrogenous bases that are in our DNA. We mm. cannot do that. And no animals can do that. Only microbes can do that because they have special enzymes called nitrogenase that can actually take nitrogen molecules. The nitrogen's got one of the strongest bonds found in nature. It's a triple bond between two nitrogen atoms. It's like a thousand kilocalories per mole. It's a very, very strong bond. And we can't we can't break it uh, in our, any of the enzymes in our bodies. But um, if we could find um, molecules that would do that very cheaply, that would make production of, of, of fertilizers and nitrogen compounds very cheap. And the new thing is to fix carbon. So to take the carbon, carbon dioxide molecules in the atmosphere and find a catalyst that would, that would take the lumps in the holes in the carbon dioxide, make them want to react with the lumps in the holes in the catalyst and make a new compound like methanol or ethanol or, or who knows what, what compound you want to make. But it's possible to make that, that. That's been done. There are groups that are working on that, but it's very slow, uh, low yield process. I think it should be possible to, to speed that up so we can take effectively recycle the carbon atoms. You're going to burn carbon in your automobiles or, or, or your, 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 um, your um, uh, natural gas-driven power plants. You're going to be burning right. carbon, producing carbon dioxide. You want to have large-scale plants that recycle, take those carbon dioxide molecules and make compounds that can, that are liquids that can be burned again. So this is, there's a professor, he's, he's deceased now, but he, was, he won a Nobel Prize for chemistry in the 80s and at the University of Southern California, his name is George Olba, O-L-A-H. Uh, he's a Hungarian refugee, went to Canada first and then to the United States. But he was working on taking carbon dioxide and make, making methanol from thin air. And he had a lot of progress. It was very exciting. And he, he called it the methanol economy. He wrote a whole book on it, the methanol economy, where you're essentially just recycling carbon atoms. Just As, like, um, you know, kids, kids in high school learn about the water cycle, you know. Right. Water molecules go in the clouds, they come down, et cetera. He imagined the same thing for carbon atoms. Um, so you never add mm. you never add more carbon to the atmosphere. You're always using the carbon that's in the atmosphere and then putting it back. So that's one example but, of what um, I mean. Okay. Well, to back up an earlier question I should have asked is, um, what is a bond? You know, I, I know maybe it's what a is simple a question, but what is, what is an electron bond? What, what happens literally? Electron gets shared yep. between two atoms, supposedly, or maybe more, but... I guess then it's, it's one way. There's there's half there's the many, there's, many there's there, that's a very difficult question to answer. I would say um, there are many ways to form a bond, uh, but what a bond is, it's uh, a mutual attraction between two atoms. Now maybe that's not what you wanted to hear, but two atoms can be mutually attracted to one another by a number of mechanisms. Um, they can just be um, if you take if you take two magnets and you bring them close to one another, they'll stick. But one, they won't change shape. They'll just stick to one another. So that there, there are some, there are some, there are some molecules, some atoms where the bond is really like that, where the two atoms come close and they stay close and they don't really disturb one another's shape. There are other bonds where, where two atoms come close together, their shape, their clouds that I was talking about, change drastically. There's, you can see the cloud. The clouds change shape, and they become mm. a new kind of. The molecule has a much different uh, cloud than the two atoms did separately. So I would say there's two extremes. There's 
one chemical bond where the, where the clouds and the two atoms deform one another to create a new bonded cloud, like a, a wedding, or, you know, two become one. And then there's other bonds where the atoms just come close together and there's a mutual attraction, but the, the atoms do not disturb, perturb one another very much, but there's still, there's still attraction and they remain close together. Um, and this is sort of what happens um, with, tra with transition metal, like iron and carbon, carbon monoxide. They come close, but if you look at their actual subatomic features, they stick together very strongly and you'll die if you inhale carbon monoxide. But if you look at the structures of the carbon atom and carbon monoxide and the iron atom and hemoglobin, they have not changed very much. It's just like two Lego pieces. When you stick them together, the Lego piece hasn't changed. They've just snapped together. There's, they don't, the pieces themselves do not change their shape. Whereas if you um, take two things together, I'm trying to think of an example, uh, that come together and, and, and weld together. Like you take two, two pieces of metal and you heat it, it becomes one piece of metal. They've changed. When you, when you weld yeah. two things together, they change. So there's really an extreme between those two kinds of bonds. There's not, I can't, I can't, there's not one kind of bond. Sorry for maybe that's uh, maybe once you understand maybe once you understand the structure of you know the electron clouds the finer structure maybe then you'll understand this is why some yeah, bonds are one way and some bonds the other way. That's right. That's right. That that's right. Yep. Hmm. That's right. It's just like you know when chemists first discovered molecules they were sort of you know fiddling around the dark they didn't know what the structures were but. Um, but when they invented the, the, the molecular structure hypothesis, when they said, oh, this compound behaves this way because these two atoms are connected to, to, to each other in this compound, but not in that compound. So when the, what, that's nanotechnology. When you understand, when chemists understood the structure of molecules, then they understood what was happening in chemistry much better. Same thing happens when you go down into the pico scale. You'll understand why some molecules that look very similar, but don't react don't react in very similar structures, but they react very differently. Then you might need to see what's, what's going on the inside the atom at the subatomic level. So that's that's the next level, and that's that's what pico technology is. Have you seen uh, any major differences in behavior, you know, just on the the subatomic level between organic molecules and inorganic ones? Is there any fundamental oh, yeah. difference there? Or yeah, 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 yeah. There is. Um, basically, what I just told you about um, the, two, the two atoms that sort of weld, become welded together. Um, that's what organic compounds are, are kind of like. The carbon atoms and, and the organic compounds, they deform drastically when they form a, a, covalent, a covalent bond. And you can see that in the lumps uh, that are in between the two atoms that weren't there before the bond was formed. Um, but in inorganic compounds, it's, it's kind of not that way. It's kind of more like a Lego kind of arrangement where the atoms come close and either they click together or they don't. They don't really change each other in the process. The atoms don't deform very much when they form a bond. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's definitely a big difference between organic compounds and inorganic compounds when you look at picoscale. Yes, different, different um, rail patterns entirely. Is it? You were saying that I was I was fast forwarding you like 20 years. What? What's? I mean, it's a silly question. What's so difficult about calculating the, the you know the subatomic structure of uh, different atoms and different molecules? 
nothing, nothing. It just takes people to do it. Um, uh, if I had yeah, a the large predictive group, part of it is what will take a long time. The predictive part, you know, what will, uh, when you know the structure, what does it tell you? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, a that's just a matter of doing dozens and maybe hundreds of calculations and looking at how the chemical properties correlate to the structural properties. So that, you know, that, 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 will, that takes time, but the most important thing is having people to do all these calculations. Everything is done on a computer, um, but we have, I have a very small group, just one student right now, and uh, he's graduating, hopefully, at the end of the summer. Um, right. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a large group. A lot of, a lot of groups have you know, 30, 40 people, and um, they're basically you know, cranking them out all the time. So it's, that's really the, the main obstacle. You need to get some more groups bonding to you. That you can uh, maybe that's great. maybe if your if your podcast goes viral, then that'll solve all my problems. Right. Serious. So what's um what would uh, what would be a really happy result for you in the next couple of years? You know, is there is there anything that you're really close to understanding that uh, you think will be a breakthrough for you in the short term? Um. Well, you know, I think uh, the, the machine learning can take a long time, and I, I don't expect a, a major breakthrough in that area, but one area uh, I was inspired by, and I've been thinking because I'm in Tennessee, where we have Oak Ridge National Laboratory. I think I think I'd I'd like to get a fine structure understanding of actinide chemistry, so the, the chemistry of atoms like uranium and thorium and um, and plutonium. Uh, those atoms are very complicated because, as I said before, the the topology is very is the lumps and the holes are important on maybe three levels of the atom. So it becomes very complicated, like three-dimensional chess. Um, so it, it's really deliciously complicated. And I, I, but the calculations are much more complicated for those molecules. So it would be a much more technologically different, difficult problem from a computational chemistry point of view. But there's really a very poor understanding of chemistry of these elements. Uh, and it's, I think it's because they're not, they're not seeing what's going on at the subatomic level. At the what are the subatomic features um, as you go from different states of one atom to a, another state or between atoms? So that's that's when I used to work at Los Alamos, where they, of course they're very familiar with plutonium. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of people there working on cleaning up nuclear waste sites. Um, so the chemistry would come in handy to to selectively remove certain isotopes but not worry about other ones that are, that are not much of a concern so again these are very um, understanding the fine structure would be really very important and that, that, you know that's I'm work, i've been talking with some scientists there that's that's one area that i in two or three years i can i can see making some something some knowledge would be better than what we have now which is which is yeah. virtually none well i was just thinking i wonder how the um you know what if you looked at different isotopes of a certain element and see how that changes the uh you know, the cloud structure. And then if you looked at, uh, you know, again, a certain atom and you started ionizing it more and more, each time you ionized it further, how does the structure change of the different shells? Yes. Yeah. Just, you I guess a, these, you all these things. one or would, two electrons, yeah. Yeah, if you take out yeah, one or two electrons, yes. Yeah, you take out one, yes, what does it look like? Yeah. Two, three, yeah. four, you know. But, and again, yeah. isotopes too. Then then there's the underlying nucleus and how does that affect, you know, the addition of, pro uh, sorry, of neutrons, how does that affect the structure of the uh, the electrons, you know? Yeah, that is, that's been studied, and people don't think it affects it very much. Um, oh, right. It's a very, very small effect, basically because, again, the nucleus is so small. 
what the what the isotopes do is they change the mass, which changes how fast the atoms move. And as atoms move, the clouds do change. So it would have a small effect. Uh, who knows? Maybe the Pico technology would help understand some isotope isotope, isotope effects. They're they're very small um, because they only affect really the mass and the speed. They don't affect the cloud shape. Um, Maybe um, this is why um, in um, group seven, I think it is, the periodic table, you have, you know, chlorine, fluorine, bromine, et cetera. Maybe that's why they all have, uh, they're a family, essentially. They have similar properties because they have the same number of valence electrons. Yes. And that's much more uh, important to the structure than the nucleus, how many protons and neutrons it has. That's that's exactly, that's that's what we hope students learn by the end of freshman chemistry, that that's exactly why elements are put into groups because of the no, but again, the, uh, the electrons. Because we're talking about the structure of the clouds, that you know, I guess that's. So I guess it, it, I guess there'll be a formula with multiple contributing factors. You know, like protons, neutrons will have a small effect. You know, the number yes. of valence electrons will have an effect. The number of underlying shells. You know, as the atom gets bigger, each underlying yep. shell, each lower energy shell, would have an influence in the valence shell structure and. I guess it's, it's yep. making more sense when you think about it all in this context. Yeah? Yep. Everything's determined by the structure, oh. um, structure of matter. Yep. Oh. Uh, I'm going to have to get going soon, um, Richard. But okay. uh, Yeah, no, that, that's it. Uh, last, last question. Uh, how do people find out more and uh, maybe get in contact with, with other questions? And I'll let you go. Okay. Um, I'm at Middle Tennessee State University. Um, uh, people can contact me. My website has got contact information. Um, okay. If they look up um, well, stay tuned for developments in Pico technology. I would say that's that's where the new new advances will be uh, filed under that. Very good, David Preston. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate your time. All right, thanks a lot, Richard, and you have a great weekend. Okay, take care. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.